So what I want to do today, we're in uh, Mark chapter 6, is uh, impress on you again what a great storyteller Mark is. And uh, he, he just, in, in just a few verses, is able to say so much about whatever topic he's describing for us. And today we'll learn about Jesus, who is the miracle worker. We'll learn about his character, his nature of God and man. We'll learn about the apostles, the disciples, what they are like, what we are like through them. And he does that in just a few verses. It's just really amazing. So he's a great storyteller, and I hope we to convey that to us today. Um, but for background, by way of review, you'll remember that in chapter 6, if we just want to review that chapter real quick, start out Jesus teaching in Nazareth to his hometown. He was rejected by those in his own household. Then he sends out the 12, and they have great success. And Mark describes how they perform miracles, not so much teaching. You read about that in the other accounts, but Mark describes how the apostles went out and they performed a lot of miracles and healings and casting out demons. Uh, then there's this interlude of John the Baptist being murdered. You know, persecution is coming, and John the Baptist is murdered. And then you also read about this sort of growing opposition toward Jesus. So Herod killed John the Baptist, and then you can sort of see Herod's eyes turning toward Jesus and his expanding ministry. So opposition toward Jesus is coming. In Luke it says, Herod said, this is Luke chapter 9, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account of, to him of all that they had done, taking them with him. He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, which is where he went to feed the 5,000. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So Luke describes sort of Herod is starting to hunt Jesus down, yet he continues to, to move on and perform his great miracles, even in this account, feeding of the 5,000, which was really more than 5,000, probably 10 or 20,000. Okay. And so that brings us to the account we have today where after he feeds the 5,000, he's going to head across the lake, across the sea, to uh, the west side of the shore and perform some more miracles. And this is the account we're going to read about today. And we know already from what we read last week that you know, it was evening when he started to feed people. So we said that's between 3 and 6 o'clock in the afternoon when they realized, oh, they haven't got any food. We've got to start thinking about this, and he feeds them. And you can imagine that would have taken several hours to pass out the food to 10,000 people. And Jesus had them sitting in all the ranks and ordered everything and, and fed them. So it's not exactly clear what time we're uh, talking about here when Jesus sends them out in the boat. But... Certainly it was between 6, 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night when they're getting in the boat to be sent across the sea. And that'll be important to remember. Um, so I think, let's just read this first. I'm going to read for us uh, our text, Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through the end of the chapter. And as I read it, I'll try to read it slowly. Just again, try to picture in your mind the scene. <laughs> Try to picture in your mind the scene that, that Mark is describing for us. Uh, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. 
When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored at the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. So as I said, the background is, feeds the 5,000, sends the apostles out into the boat. The first thing I want to mention is this phrase in verse 45. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. It's actually, the word is pretty strong, made them. It would be like he compelled them to get into the boat, or he forced them into the boat. He, it was necessary for them to get into the boat. It's not like he just said, head out. This was direct and important for Jesus to send them in the boat away, all right? And then the question is, why did he do that? The ASV actually translated it, and straightway he constrained his disciples to enter the boat. So you get the picture. He, he is insisting, really, that they get in this boat and head across the sea. So why do you think this is it's so necessary for him to do that? Any thoughts on why you think? He went to pray. Did he want to pray? Yes, yeah. right. Exactly. And that's what Mark tells us later, and we'll get to that. Yeah, so he had to pray alone. This is important. There's other scenes where you read about Jesus praying alone. Uh, and I think this is probably the second most clear example of Jesus going aside to pray alone. The other one that's very prominent, of course, is in the Garden of Gethsemane when he goes off to pray alone. And Luke mentions it often that Jesus would go off in the wilderness alone to pray. <laughs> But um, yes, indeed, important events were about to happen. He needed to be alone with the Lord. And you know also that as you read through Mark, he, it was hard for him to get a minute to do that. It was really, really hard to get just a spare moment to be alone and to pray with the Lord. So that's one clear reason. And that's ultimately what Mark tells us. Any other thoughts about why it was so important for him to send them away? Like you said, he wanted to pray, but they were probably still kind of like after church here. People are still milling around and talking, and he's like, all right, guys, you know, yeah. if I'm ever going to do this, <laughs> yeah. get in the boat and get out of here. Right. You know, that time, you know, almost uh, having to... He had a plan. Yeah. He had a plan, a timeline, and, and there were things that had to happen, and so, right, he's, he's the commander, and he's <laughs> directing people uh, to break up and move on. Well, that's another thought I had. Yes, yes. So, so the yes. Yeah, so he he had to get them off. You're, I think you're saying 
before the mob scene came, right? And tried to join him and get other boats and, and go with him across the sea. Yes, indeed. I think that's very likely. Yeah. They could have been, it could have been testing them to see how they were going to respond to him actually walking on water. Yeah. Uh, and just to see, you know, first of all, to show a miracle that, you know, to prove that he was the son of God, but then just to see what the reaction would be, you know, although he knew what that was. Yeah, great. I mean, so many more answers than I thought we'd get. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so Jesus knew the storm was coming. He knew what the crowds were doing. He knew he was going to perform this miracle to teach them a lesson. So, yeah, it, it was a matter of him just directing time and space and performing his sovereign will. Right. Any other thoughts? All of that. All of that. Yeah. Yes. That's right. All right. So, great answers. We'll keep all those in mind as we go forward here. Another reason that the Bible tells us that he did it is stated in John chapter 6. And this is a, a point I, I want to make. In John chapter 6, verse 15, it said, So Jesus, remember this, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So there is this sense ongoing, and John brings it out in particular, that they think he's going to be the king. They think he's the guy that is going to rescue them from Rome. And the whole scene we talked about last week of how Jesus is commanding these people, he is withdrawing into the mountain with them on the hillside, was reminiscent of what the zealots would do when they would sort of raise up someone to lead a charge. They would go out to these mountains and have men around and you know, whip them up and, and say, we're going we're gonna to take over Rome again. So that there was this idea that maybe people were thinking he's like that. And then he amplified that a little bit by, remember, he lined them up in 50s and 100s, and that gives a sense of he had his armies getting lined up and organized. So there's the imagery of uh, a king on earth that's coming. And so likely, possibly, I think this is what it's saying is, Jesus knew that's a temptation for the apostles, right? I mean, because they actually wanted this too. They're like, are you the, are you the king that's going to lead us now? And I think Jesus may have wanted to separate them from this so he could go dismiss the crowds and remove from them this temptation of being, um, giving them the idea that it was a kingdom on earth that he was here for now. And it clearly wasn't. So I... I think he sent them away probably in addition to all these other things so that they would um, be separated from any temptation to think that he had come now to rule physically on earth. And it made me think of, remember when uh, Jesus is tempted by the devil? One of the, one of the things he tempts him with is um, kingdoms of the earth. I'll read it for us. Matthew 4, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. The imagery is, is really similar, right? To a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
So I just mentioned that, that the devil knows this is a temptation, right? And he's trying to tempt Jesus with it. It doesn't work, of course. But if it was a temptation for Jesus, it would have been a temptation for the human apostles to, to want to be ruler of, of the Jews. And so Jesus sends them away. And then it says, well, he himself was sending the crowd away. So he dismisses the crowds probably for similar reasons to say, you know, time to go home. This miracle has completed. Yeah. They were really excited. That's right. Very excited. And John talks about how many of them, they were just there to see the miracles and they were there to get free food. And it said Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew those who, who would believe in him. And, um, yeah, I'm sure he, he had to miraculously, in a way, disperse that crowd. It does point to his mercy, too. I didn't, we brought this up last week, but, you know, Jesus feeding the crowds and performing all these miracles, and then you read later that he knows that most of them aren't going to believe in him. So it speaks to his mercy on uh, everybody. And uh, for us, I think, the teaching is we're to have mercy on everybody. Everybody, even the non-believers, we think they're non-believers, or, or we know it, or they're not believers now. They may be in the future, so it's uh, encouragement for us to always, always be merciful and kind to everybody, even those that aren't believers. Jesus knew they weren't going to be believers, and he showed mercy to them. So it's an example for us. Okay, uh, verse 46. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So this sort of answers the question directly. One reason he sent the, the apostles away was so he could be alone with the Lord. And it's not the first time you see him praying in Mark. In the very first chapter, he, um, in a really busy first chapter where he performed so many miracles, he cast out a demon. And after he cast out the demon, he, it says he got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying. And in Mark chapter 1, you, you see how it was so difficult for him to get away. He didn't get away but a few moments then, and it seems like he didn't get away for but a couple hours here. I thought of the Lord's Prayer, too, in the context of this. You know, how does the Lord's Prayer go? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it sort of had, I apply it to this scene the whole idea of the kingdom coming and thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, the kingdom on earth isn't here yet. Um, and I think that was part of why he's trying to, what he's trying to tell his apostles. And the model prayer that he gives them reminds us of that, that God is sovereign and his kingdom will come on earth and heaven in his timing. It makes me think the apostles could have learned that prayer right then and it would have been really applicable to them. Okay, so I just want to impress on us again the image. Big crowds, he breaks it up, sends them away, you know, implores them to go away. They're in the boat, and then you have Jesus up here alone on the mountain. Okay, so it's just a really vivid image. And then if you look, what does he see when he looks out? Verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the boat's in the middle of the sea, and he's alone on the land. And in John, you read, it says, The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And when they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And Matthew says 
the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So you, we know it's dark, and there's a big storm. And this, the boat is way out three or four miles into the lake. So how does Jesus see it? Right? Have you thought of that? Well, that's a good thought. Yes, so it's possible, right. But my argument to that is it was really dark. There was, there was probably no light, and there was a storm. And there was such a storm, actually, that it was taking them. Well, we read later, probably up to like eight hours or nine hours, they're rowing in this lake. Yeah, the ESV says they were painfully making headway painfully. Yeah, the word there is actually basanizo. Um, and it's sometimes translated torture. So they're torturously, they're sufferingly, they're, they're, and it actually can be translated tormented. So the idea here is that you have 12 guys, and almost all of them for sure are experienced fishermen. All right? And they're out in this lake. And if you look at the map where Bethsaida is, it'll be over here for you, and then where they're going, which is the, near these plains of Gennesaret or, or Capernaum, it sort of cuts the top off that lake. It's only a couple miles. And it should normally have probably only taken them a little while. And if you further look at the map and you read John's account, you'll see where they end up isn't where they were heading to begin with. They end up way south. So the idea here is it's possible, right, he could, have, he could have physically seen them that far, but I don't think so. I think it's a stormy night, it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and I think he sees them like Jesus sees us now, right, in the, the, with these with his godly powers, with his spiritual ability, or I don't know if spiritual is the right word, but it's the divine power of God who sees everything on us now is the same sight that I think Jesus saw with them straining at the oars out there on the sea. Um, and I think the gospel accounts go to lengths to tell us that they're far out. And that's for a reason. that they're, they're out in the middle. They're sort of struggling and they're lost. And Jesus, I think, sees them supernaturally in the middle of the sea. Yeah, I think you just read, was it ESV? Yeah. Yeah, it says they were making headway painfully. And then the ASV says, uh, Jesus saw them distressed in rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. Jesus is alone, sends them out into the stormy sea in the middle of the night, and he sees them rowing almost like it's a divine thing. They're just sort of spinning in circles out there in this lake. The lake's not that big. But uh, I, it's just, again, I, it's Mark the storyteller painting us a, a awesome picture of that true account. And then uh, if we apply it to our own lives now, we're like these people just flapping away in the sea of life. And Jesus, we know, is able to see us. Go ahead. When you put it that way, it's hard not to think of Moses, you know, you said not forgetting Moses mm-hmm. gave him bread in the mountain, Jesus gave him the miraculous bread, yep. and now he's um, coming down from the mountain and he's calming Yeah. The sea, it makes you think of, yeah. you know, leaving Egypt, and I don't know, but it's intended I, by Mark, but it's, when you put it this way, it's, I think There of, are similar parallels, right, that you can see in the Old Testament accounts also. Yeah. So I don't want to undermine the fact of what's happened here. This is a miracle. This is Jesus seeing them. This really happened. And I, but I think the application for us is to understand that Jesus himself also sees us as, as we are toiling away. Um, 
And it says there in Mark chapter, or verse 48, it says, Seeing them straining, suffering, tormented, rowing all night at these oars. So think about it again. Uh, well, let me finish the verse. For the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. So the fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they were dismissed about maybe 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. They're just going to row across the lake to you know, rest for the night, I would presume. And now it's eight hours later, and they're still out there. You think they were tired? Uh-huh. You think they were frustrated? Uh, scared? Um, lost, really, with the wind and the sea? I mean, completely, I would imagine, frazzled. And these are experienced fishermen. Um, so what would you think if you saw this apparition come by? Uh, probably the same thing they thought. Um, it says he, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. And that's a, that phrase, he intended to pass them by, as I understand it, reading some of the commentators, could also be translated, he desired to come alongside them. And one of the other commentators said that this is from the point of view also of the guys on the boat. So they, they get the impression when they see him walking that he's just going to mosey on by, right? And uh, to me, well, a couple things. One is this is another just a vivid example of the dual nature of Jesus, right? He's man and he's God. He, he's both. And he's able to um, suffer, right, and be tired and be hungry and all these human characteristics. Yet at the same time, he's able to see in the dark and walk on water. It's just a really great picture of the dual nature of Jesus. So he intends to pass them by, and I think the idea that they think he's going to walk by and they have to cry out to him is also intentional, right? It's like, just a picture is they cry out to him for help, as should we. And it says in verse 49, as he's about to pass them by, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost ghost, and cried out. And that word ghost is phantasma, so they thought it was a phantom just walking by. And they cried out. And the crying out isn't just like, hey. They shrieked. And that same word is used to describe the, um, the people who are possessed with demons, the way they shriek out and cry out. It, it was that much of an exclamation. They just shrieked and cried out, really in terror, no doubt because of what they saw, combined with their exhaustion and everything else and their confusion. And don't forget, too, before they head across the sea, okay, remember when they went to Bethsaida, they were going to go there to rest? Because they had come back from their ministry of however many weeks they were gone, and they were excited, and they were very tired, and Jesus recognized it. He said, they were tired. You need rest. Let's go across to Bethsaida and rest. And the, the text says, before they could get there, the crowds were running across the hillside, thousands of people, and they get there, and there's no rest, and they minister all day there to the people. They do get some food, but nevertheless, they have to get in this boat, and now they're rowing across the sea for so many hours. So I think we get the point. They're utterly exhausted, and they see Jesus walking like a phantom. Uh, they may have still been superstitious. You know, there was a lot of superstition in that time, and they may have been superstitious, thinking, well, this is a ghost walking on the water. And it says in verse 50, they all saw him. They were terrified. Uh, so Jesus immediately spoke to them. Another great image. They're horrified. 
and they cry out, and he just speaks immediately. So he instantly just calms them down. He said, don't worry, take courage. Take courage, it's me. It is I, don't be afraid. Uh, that phrase, take courage, is unique to Jesus. He's really the only one, except for one account in Mark later on when the crowd tells a, uh, a man to take courage. But everywhere else in the New Testament when this phrase is used, take courage, it's Jesus saying it. It's, it's one of his unique phrases. So take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Adding to the uh, um, theological implication of this verse, it's like he's saying, take courage, I am. Okay, it's the same phrase that he uses when he's talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, when he says, I am, you know, Yahweh. I, he's basically, it's the same word. And I don't want to make too much of a point of that because it can also just mean it is I, but it is the same phraseology. So he may have had an allusion to that same concept of I'm God, I am here with you. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. And this is in Matthew's account where we have already read it, but I'll read it again. After he says that, this is when Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. So even poor Peter, you know, <laughs> he says, don't be afraid. A minute later, Peter is afraid again. He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith, why do you doubt? When he got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And John's account says after this, after Jesus gets in the boat with them, it says, So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. So in John's account, when Jesus gets in the boat with them, I guess with Peter, you know, they're like teleported to the shore. Somehow, miraculously, they're just taken to the shore. So do you see the imagery of it? I mean, there's so much in that picture, and Mark just uses a few verses to describe it to us, but Jesus joins them. They're saved, and they're on a safe land. Yeah, yeah I think of our lives a lot with that as well. You know, we'll have a... <coughs> time of distress, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, you know, and, and we draw near to God and we got it all together again, you know, and then next event comes along and there we are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we take heart, uh, it is I do not be afraid. It reminds me of the Philippians 4, 6, you know, that we often mm -hmm. quote, don't be anxious about anything, but, you know, I'm always reminded that the verse numbers weren't in there when the original letters were written and you know, if I were in charge of putting the verse numbers in there I would have started verse huh. 6 with the end of verse 5 where it says the Lord is near yeah. then I would have parenthetically inserted the word therefore be anxious for nothing and that's the same thing yeah. that these guys are going yeah. through here yeah. Yeah. you know that they hey, don't worry I'm here. it's me Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden the seas still, our sea gets still when we mm -hmm. cling to him. Great. I think that Philippians 4, 5, and 6 is saying the exact same thing that Mark's telling us descriptively. Yeah. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious. He's right there in the boat with him. Yeah. Don't be anxious. And then he takes him to safety. Thank you. Yes. And then Matthew tells, you know, they worshipped him. 
you certainly are God's son when he gets in the boat with him and calms the, store, calms the sea, right? Remember that, because we're going to contrast it here in a minute to what Mark's take is on where their heart and mind was prior to this. But the point is, they do worship him at that point, and this is another seminal event in their lives where they recognize him as God. Yeah, verse 51 of Mark 6 says, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. You know, be anxious for nothing. He's near. And they were utterly astonished. And, uh, of course, they were utterly astonished based on what just happened. Okay. So now look at verse 52, which is so uh, amazing. And it's worth spending some time talking about. So after they're amazed utterly at the ghost Jesus calming the sea, getting in the boat, teleporting them across to the land, it says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So Mark is just telling us that, um, you know, they're still, even though before this event, they have seen so many miracles, so many demons, so many healings, feedings. It's just beyond what you can imagine, and they've been with him. Even up until this point, their heart was still hardened, and they're this spiritually not very perceptive still. And actually, in Mark's gospel, this is the beginning of it. You'll see, as the chapters move along, that the, the apostles continue to be really dense and really not understanding the truth. And... Uh, it's called Markan irony, one of the commentators. Mark has this way of, of using irony, of putting two opposites together, and it's just so ironic that they, at this point, are still um, spiritually not able to see the truth of who Jesus is and what he's all about. Um, they just can't seem to assimilate it, what, what he is, with their human minds. And we'd actually, let me read a verse for you from Mark chapter 4. There, there's, a, there's a hinting of this density of the apostles even back then, and we'll see it more. In Mark chapter 4, we read this, but it says, And he was saying to them, To you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So he's saying to the apostles, To you it's been given the mystery. This is in chapter 4, which is before chapter 6. It's verse 11 through 13. Said, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? This is more of Mark's sort of irony. On the one hand saying, I have given you the ability to understand these things. The other people aren't going to understand the parables. I've uniquely given you the ability. And then he finishes it by saying, well, how are you going to understand all the rest if you don't understand this? So I think what's going on here is an example to us. The apostles will never forsake Jesus ultimately, except one, Judas, who was destined to be a betrayer. But other than him, Jesus will protect all the apostles, even though they have moments where their hearts are hardened, they don't understand it, they're not going to be like the people who aren't saved and who will ultimately reject him. The apostles, in the end, Jesus protects them as his sheep, and we'll read some, as his sheep, and will not let them go completely astray, right? Same with us. We might have moments where we are anxious about things and fearful and think that the world is just not going our way or it's not 
Jesus isn't helping me that much right now, but ultimately we won't forsake him, and ultimately he will help us, bring us comfort. Any questions? Thoughts? Shrieking. The ghost and the shrieking. Yeah. I wonder if they thought that was like the Grim Reaper. You know, like, hey, they had this. Yeah. They're like, and then here comes. I wonder. I mean, uh, when you. They're dead. Have you been through a storm, a harsh storm sometimes? And it can be scary. And I'm even in my house, you know, and you hear the limbs falling and the wind howling. And it's like, wow, this is really scary. Think of being out in the sea for nine hours like that. So, yeah, I wonder if they thought this was the end. Go ahead. I find it interesting, too, that in Matthew, he says that they acknowledge and say, surely you are the Son of God. But in Mark, they're, they're dim. And yeah. Hearts are still hardened. Yes. So... Caused the storm to have them witness the fact that he's walking on water, and then immediately after he gets in the boat, they're transported to the other side. Mm-hmm. Yet another miracle. Yeah. And they're still dead. Yes. You can count in, in these few verses how many miracles Jesus did, rapid succession, uh, feeding the five thousand, uh, seeing across the, the dark area. Unless he could really see, like you said, made the desert. But I don't know, but possibly seeing where he shouldn't be able to see, walking on water. Oh, some critics say, well, obviously he wasn't walking on water. If you look at the map, they really were just barely offshore, and he was walking on some kind of sandbar, which the only way to interpret that is to just have a bias, a non-textual understanding of that, right? Because the text is so obvious. They're experienced fishermen. They're way out at sea. Uh, so it was a miracle, yes. He walks in the water. He stills the sea again, instantly teleports them across. So, yeah, so many rapid-fire miracles that they couldn't resist but worshiping him at, at that point. If they the sandbar, being experienced fishermen, they'd have pulled the boat over to the sandbar yeah. and stood there for eight hours rather than rolling. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know? So to, to, to believe that, you'd have to um, just, yeah. just have the bias that yeah. it's not, the account's not true. Go ahead. Is it possible that there was wind but not a storm? Because Jesus saw and they saw, maybe the moon and the stars were out, and maybe sure. it wasn't rain and clouds, but just heavy wind. Could that be? Yes, that's a good thought. I don't think there's anything in the text that says it was actually raining. It says it was a storm and the wind was contrary. So, yes, I'm not going to come down too hard. It is possible he could physically have seen them. Yes. And there was no clouds. There was no rain. It was just windy. Um, yeah, I think so. Go ahead. Well, you know, we, we gospel says all the time, you know, he knew what people were thinking. So yeah. he's got this power to know what people are thinking. I don't think it's a problem for him to <coughs> see someone what they're doing. Right. So we don't want to belabor it too much. But, yeah, I agree. It, 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 um, we know he has supernatural abilities. He knows what people are thinking anyway. Yep. So I wanted to finish. We've already touched on some applications here, but I want to be sure and cover all the ones that, that I thought of uh, that we can apply to ourselves. So number one, the apostles are hardened, so are we. Right? We can be hardened on earth. All I have to do is read Romans 7. Right? This principle is present. There's evil in me all the time. So we can be hardened. We can be insensitive to the 
calling of the Lord in our lives. Sometimes we don't want to read the Bible. Sometimes we resist things, and we sin. So just like the apostles, we shouldn't be so hard on them because we're like them in a lot of ways. Uh, number two, Jesus kept them safe. And I thought of John 17 the, with his high priestly prayer. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And so even though they rebel, they don't understand, he ultimately keeps his people because they were given to him by the Father. He says, And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So we can be hard like the apostles. Jesus kept them safe. He will keep us safe. He will keep us safe no matter what. Uh, Jesus prays for us. That's the other thought. He's alone on the mountain praying for... I'm sure he's praying for the apostles and praying for the people, praying for his future ministry in the same way he prays for us. In Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself, that's the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in the Trinity, um, that Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So even now, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Jesus sees our struggles just like he saw their struggles. They're out in that boat, going nowhere. Sounds like they're just going in circles. And so he sees our struggles too. In the world, you'll have tribulation, right? We will struggle, and he sees it. And then the second half of that verse, in the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. The same phrase he used earlier, take courage. I've overcome the world. So he has victory. Ultimately, he has victory, and therefore, so do we. Uh, hope it's not corny. Jesus will join us, all right? Just like he joined them in the boat, he'll join us in our struggles. Don't let your heart be troubled, he says. I'll ask the Father, he'll give you a helper, that he'll be with you forever. So he joins us in our struggles. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Because he abides with you, and he will be in you. So it's application to him joining them in the boat. He is abiding also with us. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Uh, Jesus will give us rest. He says your joy will be full in him. So he cares for the sparrow and the hairs on our heads and everything. He'll give us rest, and he'll care for us. And the last one is have hope. You know, just like the apostles got instant relief, probably at the darkest hour. They, they were frustrated and out of the blue, they got instant relief. So we can have hope, too, that if we're struggling and having difficulties and it's not easy, that there may be instant hope in the next minute to your life or the next day. Anything else? Those are my uh, eight points of application for the text. I think if I, w- I would get, I'm probably reading Mark more than you guys are because I'm preparing for the lesson, right? I mean, I, th- I think it's safe to say. I wish you could read it over and over again and, and just appreciate how he uses the language and his ability through the Holy Spirit to just tell a story and tell mo- a lot more than the words actually say through the imagery. So I encourage you to, to keep reading through it as we prepare for the lessons, and it's been a real blessing to me and a great, great book, of course. Yes, Jana. I'm just wondering if 
or not remembering and a hard heart because they hadn't considered it, they hadn't remembered it. And I think about us in our lives as we walk with the Lord and we're drawing closer to him, but sometimes we get in a, I don't know, we just sometimes forget what he's done for us. Mm -hmm. And you think about sometimes that first love when he first saved you. Right. And um, I think he would call us to remember that. And I think there might be a connection there with keeping our hearts soft. Mm-hmm. And that caused me to think of Psalm 42. So can I read a little? Please bit? read. Yeah, Psalm 42. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes. There's some connections. It's really beautiful. As the, and this is King James, so bear with me. As the heart panted after the water brooks, so my soul panted after thee, O God. My soul thirsted for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude, I had went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted? Yes. Yeah, you should keep reading. I'll read it. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So, I think, yeah, the apostles were in that boat thinking my bones are about to break. And then ultimately hope in God, for I'll yet praise him. Very good. I think, too, Tim, that safe, when you, we imply it that Christ will keep us safe, mm-hmm. we always take that. I mean, in this descriptive story, they were delivered from the storm. Mm-hmm. But if we understand what we've just read in Psalm 42, that that safe may be, I lose a loved one, right. that I'm not delivered, or like we recently walked through a death of an infant, you know, um, as a church, you know, those are times that you, you trust in God's character and his love, that that is, that is his plan, that is the way mm-hmm. he has, will keep us safe through that trial, even though mm-hmm. we weren't delivered from it, you know, and yeah. so that's, that's where it's the heart of Christ and the trust in him, even when that, the temporal things around us aren't delivered like we think they should right. be. Yep, our ultimate hope is in the Lord. Yeah, this tragedy with the crisp, it's really tough. And I don't know if any of you went to the, sermon, the service last week, but it was wonderful the way Shane, the Lord, through Shane, was able to encourage, I think, everybody there that ultimately our hope is in the Lord. He is the giver of all comfort and 
praise and glory. And even though we don't understand some of these tragedies on earth, our hope is in him. Yep. yep. I think realize it too, that it's in his timing. Obviously, they wouldn't have wanted to labor like that for eight hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when God was ready, he stilled it. Right. Yeah. We want to utter a prayer and want it fixed. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Kind of on that vein, um, I was ministering to someone this week who had a really, really, really difficult life abuse from childhood on. She turned her 40s. And I read to her from Psalm 121 where it says that the Lord will watch over me. The Lord will keep me. He won't let my foot slip. And I, uh, I wonder if she thinks this isn't true for her. Mm-hmm. And then I realized it's not always protection from these trials, these tragedies, but he has brought her to this point that her soul may still be delivered mm-hmm. because she, she hasn't turned from him ultimately. Yes, right. she still has an opportunity to know him and walk with him in the midst of this past of tragedy and trial. So I yeah. think the scripture is true for her and for those mm-hmm. who are experiencing trials. Yeah, very good. I agree. Anything else? We'll uh, we'll start chapter seven next week. Thanks for coming.